Gemara in Yuma tells us that each person, when he's finished his job on this planet, stands in front of the Beis Din Shamala, and they ask a series of questions, the first one being, I give you a Torah which was the directive to grow, to accomplish. It was a spiritual nourishment. It was the guidebook to allow you to become the great human being you could have been. Why didn't you involve yourself in it? And why didn't you become a great person? And the Gemara tells us that each person has his story, his would have, could have, should have, but didn't. And for each person there's an answer. The Uni, the poor man, walks in, and they say to him, Why weren't you involved in Torah study? Me? I was a poor man. I had to work 14 hours a day, 6 days a week. What do you want from me? And they say to him, Klum You were no more poor than was Hillel. And then the Gemara goes on to tell us the events of Hillel's life. And Hillel was already a Zakim Yisrael. He used to earn his daily keep by selling kindling wood. He would go into the forest, gather little twigs, go door to door selling it. That's how he earned his living. And every day he would gather wood Every day he would earn a tarpik, which was then the smallest coin in the land. Half of that money he would use to pay his household expenses. Half of that money he would use to pay the shomer base medrash. In those days, the base medrash was out in the woods. There was a shomer, a guardsman. The guardsman earned his livelihood by collecting a fee. Every day Hillel would gather wood. Every day Hillel would sell it and pay the shomer. One Arab Shabbos, it was Tevis. It was late. Apparently Hillel didn't have time to earn the money. And he comes to the guardsman and he says, Sir, every day I'm here, every day I gladly pay you. I didn't have time today to earn that money. Please let me in. The guard says, No, please, no, please, no. I can't leave Divrilikim Chaim. <clears throat> Hillel goes to the side of the building, climbs up, and he listens to the shear from the Aruba from the skylight. Now, it's not clear what happened. Either he fell asleep or he lost consciousness, but it began snowing. And in the morning, when Shmai and Avitalian came into the base medish, it was dark. There were mounds and mounds of snow on top. And they look up, and in the skylight, they see an image of a man covered by snow. Quick, someone, get him down, get him down. And they bring him down, says Shemaiah, the words, Roy Lechal of Shabbos, this man, it's appropriate, worthy to Mechal of Shabbos for. They light a fire, and warm up some water, resuscitate him. And when the poor man stands in front of the Beisden Shemala, and says, I couldn't have learned, what do you want from me? They say to him, Klum Onyayisa Yosem Hillel. You are no more poor than was Hillel. If Hillel could become so great, why weren't you that as well? And that's the Gemara. And I heard my Rebbe, the Rishiva Zatzal, Rabbi Leibowitz, ask the following question on this Gemara. At the end of our days, each of us will be judged. But I won't be asked to be you. You won't be asked to be me. None of us will be, be compared to Tzadikim who lived hundreds of years ago. Each of us will be given a different set of circumstances, different conditions, different talents, different abilities. And each of us are held to the most demanding standard, the standard of me. I'm not asked to be you, you're not asked to be me, I'm asked to be me. And the question they ask is, how much of me did I become? 80%, 60%, 40%. So why is the Uni asked to be Hillel? The Uni has his set of circumstances, Hillel had his. As a matter of fact, they say in the name of the Vilna Gon that the most painful moment in a person's life is not that fatal car crash, not when he hears the shattering of glass or twisting of metal, not even when he realizes that the Atzala guys are putting that sheet over his head. They say in the name of the Groh, it's when you leave your body. When I leave my body and I go in front of the heavenly tribunal from the Beisun Shamala, and they hold up this picture, this picture of this great man, this tzaddik, this Tamil Chacham, 
And they say to me, why didn't you become that? Me, little me. You want me to be that great person? What do you want from me? And they say in the name of the girl, the most painful word you'll ever hear, the words, that is you. That is you had you lived up to your potential, and that is you had you become what you could have been. That is you had you actualized what you were destined to be. But you see, the picture is a picture of me. I'm not asked to be you. You're not asked to be me. So what relevance does Hillel have? Very nice. One time in history, there was a great man called Hillel. He had his life circumstances, and the poor man has his. Why is the poor man asked to be Hillel? And I'd like to see if we could understand the answer to that question, and in fact, what this Gemara is sharing with us. And to do that, let me share with you an interesting observation. In Asia today, still much of the heavy lifting on that continent is done by the elephant. You can see the trainer puts heavy loads on the back, logs in the trunk, and all day long the elephant schleps throughout the jungle, all day long it trudges. At night, the trainer ties the elephant to a peg in the ground, and the elephant remains rooted to that spot. If you were looking at this scene, you might ask the following question. I don't understand. The elephant is mighty. The peg is not that deep. The rope is not that strong. The question you might ask is, why doesn't the elephant just escape? Why does it go out into the jungle, forage, eat? And the answer is that the elephant can escape. Why? Because when the elephant's born, it weighs about 250 pounds, and the trainer ties it to a peg in the ground. And the baby elephant tries to escape, but it's not strong enough. It tries for a day, it tries for a week, it tries for a month, and then the elephant learns the lesson. The peg is too deep, the rope is too strong. And that lesson remains fixed in its mind throughout its life. Even when it reaches full maturation, when the elephant weighs 14,000 pounds, when it can plow through a cement wall like it's nothing, it remains rooted to that spot because in its limited understanding there's a ceiling, it can't break out, the rope is too strong, the peg is too deep. And I believe that that's an apt muscle. Many people you will meet in life do not become a fraction of what they could have been. Not because they don't have talent, not because they don't have ability, but because they have these glass ceilings, these powerful, powerful ceilings keeping them in place. And I'd like to share with you an interesting observation. If you sincerely believe about yourself, that you're plain Joe, plain vanilla, whatever, don't expect greatness out of me, I'm just average. I guarantee you will live up to exactly that self-prophecy. And many, many people don't become a fraction of what they could have been, not because they don't have talent, not because they don't have ability, but because they have these glass ceilings that keep them in check. And every once in a while you hear about someone shattering just such a glass ceiling. I'll give you an interesting example. In competitive sports, for almost 100 years, there was an unbreakable milestone. Athlete after athlete tried to run a mile in under four minutes, and no one could do it. It became a cause celebrated internationally. Pavel Nuri of Finland ran the mile in four minutes and ten seconds in 1912. Gunga Hag of Sweden ran it in four minutes and six seconds 12 years later. Roger Carpenter of the United States ran it ten years later in four minutes and four seconds. No one could break the four-minute barrier. Athlete after athlete dreamt about it. No one could do it. In fact, they began postulating all kinds of theories. Man's skeletal structures are wrong. It creates too much wind resistance. It became an accepted medical fact that no human being could possibly run a mile in under four minutes. In fact, one Australian runner, John Landy, ran the mile in four minutes and two seconds four times in a row. He said the words, it's a brick wall. It can't be penetrated. 
May 5th, 1954, Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. That untouchable, unbreakable record, he ran a mile in under four minutes. Oddly enough, 47 days later, John Landy, the Australian fellow, four minutes and two seconds, a brick wall, ran the mile faster than did Roger Bannister. Arda still, within one year's time, 32 other runners had run the mile in under four minutes. But here was the strangest part. Nothing changed. They didn't change diet, they didn't change running shoes, they didn't change technique. The only thing that changed was Roger Bannister took something from the realm of impossible, he showed it could be done, then John Landy, then 32 other runners, now any international track star runs the mile in under four minutes. But it took one human being to shatter the myth and to break that glass ceiling, then everyone could follow suit. But this concept of glass ceilings, of limiting beliefs, is not just in competitive sports not just by international sports stars. I'll give you an example much closer to home. In 1997 in Tallahassee, Florida, a young boy was involved in a car accident. The ambulances came rushing to the scenes. The EMTs surrounded him, but they couldn't help him. You see, the boy's arm was pinned under the wheel of the car. They needed to get him to a hospital, but the car's wheel was literally right on, on his arm. And the whole discussion, get a crane, get machinery, what do they do? In any case, there's a bystander who sees what's happening, doesn't consult, doesn't say a word, rushes over to the fender of the car, bends down, literally lifts up the car, they take the boy and put him into the ambulance, ship him off to the hospital, patch him up, he's good to go. This story became a media sensation. Almost every newspaper in the country ran the story. Why? Because the onlooker wasn't some muscular powerlifter, wasn't some burly fireman. The onlooker was the boy's 63-year-old grandmother who saw... Her grandson, under the wheel of the car, rushed over and lifted the car. Okay. Charles Garfield is a psychologist. Charles Garfield wrote a book called Peak Performance. In this book, he describes athletes who do things that you and I would say are physically impossible, can't be done. And he describes an athlete lifting a 1,200-pound boulder. He describes athletes running for 24 hours straight. He spent 20 years studying feats of strength that seem impossible. And he says that when he read this story in the paper, he said, I must interview this woman. I must get a story. The world can learn something from her. He describes that he called her up and explained who he was, why he wanted to meet with her, and he says she flatly refused. He called a second time. Again, explained who he was and why he wanted to meet with her, and again she refused. A third time he called her, she refused. After a few months, on the fourth phone call, finally she agrees to an interview. He describes when he, when he gets to her house, she's very friendly, offers him a cup of coffee, they sit down and he says, Madam, just share with me your experience, your flow of consciousness. What were you going through at that moment? And he says she was very vivid, very graphic, describing exactly what she was experiencing. And when she was finished, he said to her, I don't understand this. I don't get it. Not the lifting of the car, that doesn't bother me. What I don't understand is it's clear that you didn't want the world to hear the story. But I don't understand. What you did was heroic. You saved your grandson's life. Why were you so reluctant to tell your story? And he says that she turned to him and she said these words, If this which I knew was impossible, I actually could do, what does it say about the rest of my life? Being a personal coach, a psychologist, he asked her, what do you mean? She explained that she always dreamt about being an educator, being a teacher, she never got beyond the high school education. So at age 63, Mrs. Laura Schultz began her college education, 
with the coaching of Dr. Charles Garfield, and she went on to teach college-level science. But here's the point. You and I know that in the real world, grandmas don't lift cars. In the real world, the boys stay stuck until they get some heavy machinery, until they get a crane, because grandmas cannot do that. Until a grandmother sees that it's her grandson. Until she sees that if she doesn't do it, it won't happen, and she rushes over martial strength she couldn't envision, taps energy that she couldn't imagine, and does that which she thought was always impossible, and she shatters that glass ceiling, that limiting belief. And I heard my Rebbe, Shivazatzal, explain this Gemara that way. The poor man is not asked, why didn't you become Hillel? The poor man is asked, there was a man in your generation, as poor as you, and he reached his potential, and why didn't you use him as a hero? Why didn't you put him up on your mantelpiece and say the words, if Hillel could, despite his poverty, reach his level of greatness, so too could I. The poor man is not compared to Hillel, the poor man has asked, why did not you use Hillel as a hero? Why did not you use him as an icon? Why did not you say, if he could do it, so too could you? And I believe this is one of the principles of success in life. You have to have lofty goals, real, real lofty things that you aspire to, that you reach for. And you also have to have heroes, you have to have people you emulate, people you look up to. You have to say, if he can do it, so too can I. Because that motivation is what's going to move you that motivation is what's going to propel you to reach the heights. And this, I believe, is one of the great principles of success in life. You have to have lofty, lofty goals, and you have to have heroes, people that you look up to, and people that motivate you, and you say, if he could do it, so too could I. But this is the first principle of success in life. There's a second principle. And if you don't have the second principle also in place, I almost guarantee you're going to fail. What's the second principle of success? I was a young man, about 22, 23 years of age, and I was invited to join a very exclusive Musa Chabura. Musa Chabura in Chavitz Chaim Yeshiva is a very small group of guys, five, six guys, usually about the same age, same level of learning, and each week one of the fellows was charged with producing a Chiddush. It might have been a Musa, it might have been a Midos, something that was a Chiddush, then we discussed it as a group, whether it was simple or not, obvious, a Chiddush, and then we'd see how to apply it as a group. Okay. In any case, this was a very serious group. First week, someone brought in a Das Balitosis, a beautiful Chiddush in Amuna. We discussed it back and forth. Next week, someone brought in a Gemara, beautiful Chazal. Again, a beautiful Chiddush. We discussed it. Third week, someone brought in a Musa Sefer. The fourth week is my turn to present. And I walked into the room, but I was not carrying a Gemara, nor a Chumash, nor a Musa Sefer. I walked into the room carrying a picture sports book. Now, these were very serious guys, and I got some pretty, look, pretty serious looks, as in Schaefer, what's with the picture sports book? So I took the book, and I opened it to the center section, and there you saw Muhammad Ali holding up the heavyweight championship belt. At which point, those looks got pretty dirty, as in Schaefer, what do you want? I said, uh-uh, tell me what you see. All right, we get it. Frazier had been the world champion. Ali just won the fight. What do you want? I said, exactly. When you look at that picture, what do you see? You see victory. You see glory. You don't see that the heavyweight champion got so beat up in the fight that they drove him directly to the hospital. When you read the sports section, you read about him in his moment of glory, in the height of victory. But you don't read about the fact that the world champion got so beat up in that fight that for 21 days, for three weeks, he couldn't get out of his hospital bed. But that part they don't tell you. And what I wanted to share with my friends that day was the second rule of success in life. 
And that is you got to know how to take a punch. You got to know how to get hit, get back off that canvas and back in the fight time after time. Because I don't care how much talent you have. I don't care how much ability you have. If you don't know how to get hit, knocked down, get back up, I guarantee you'll never reach a fraction of what you could have been. Why? Because if you set lofty goals, if you set real-life goals, you're going to make some, you're going to miss some, and invariably you're going to find yourself down and out. And it's only if you know how to pick yourself up, get back into the fight time after time after time that you're going to actually succeed. But this is not a rule in prize fighting. This is not a rule in combat. I'll share with you a quote. Success consists of going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. One more time. Success consists of going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. Who said it? And usually I get some pretty interesting guesses. But I'll share with you who said that quote. The man who said that quote was a college professor. And the man who said that quote was a statesman. The man who said that quote was uh, knighted by the Queen of England. The man who said that quote actually won the Nobel Prize. The man who said that quote was the Prime Minister of England, Sir Winston Churchill. But let me share with you one interesting observation. Social historians credit Churchill with saving the free world. They say if it weren't for this galvanizing force of personality, the Nazis would have won. The Allies were doing pretty, pretty poorly. 41, 42, it looked pretty bleak. It was his galvanizing force of personality that rallied the Allies to their victory, and they credit him with saving humanity. But I'd like to share with you a very interesting observation. Who was the Reich Chancellor in 1933? Adolf Hitler. Who was the Prime Minister in those days? Neville Chamberlain. Neville Chamberlain's attitude was very simple. Appeasement, Liebenstein, don't provoke Hitler, give him some room. In 33, there was one sane voice from the parliament floor screaming out was Winston Churchill, Adolf Hitler is a menace to society, a menace to humankind, but no one listened. And it wasn't until years later, when he was elected prime minister, that he actually took control and he changed the course of history. May 1945, Germany surrenders. July 1945, there are elections in England, and Winston Churchill finds himself voted out of office. A great wartime prime minister, but it's a peacetime. We need a different kind of leader. After bringing England to its finest hour, after saving the free world, he found himself unemployed, on the street, down and out. He went on to write that six treaties worked that won him the Nobel Prize, went on to fight communism, but that was his life. One of the most successful human beings in the 20th century, success consists of going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. And this is the second rule of success in life. you got to know how to take a punch. You see, Hashem put us on this planet to grow, to accomplish, and Hashem gave us a Torah. And Torah is the exact guidebook. It shows us exactly what to do, how to do, how to become a great person. And even more, it's a spiritual nourishment. You learn it and your Neshama shines. It's rocket fuel for the soul. But to do it, you need lofty, real goals. You have to set goals in learning, goals in dominating, goals in Amuna, goals in Midos, and you have to really strive. But to do that, you have to have heroes. You have to have people you look up to in many different areas. You say, if they can do it, so too can I. But you also have to know how to take a punch. I believe these are the two principles of success in life. 
I have to have lofty, demanding goals. I will accomplish. I will grow. I will reach greatness. And you have to have heroes that you use as your models, as your icons. And you also got to be prepared to fall because not every goal you set you're going to make. Not every goal you set is going to be easy. You're going to find yourself down and out and the ability to pick yourself up and say, I'm starting afresh. It's going to be the Dafayomi one more time. It's going to be that Seder Mishnayis another time. It's going to be another time that I'm going to actually master this material. And you set goals and you get back on that horse, get back into the fight time after time. And I would like to close with one last observation. I was zochet to hear Rav Avram Chaim Foyer say a hesped for his father-in-law, Rav Mordechai Gifter. And he says that Rav Mordechai Gifter was one of the first American-born gedolim. And if you went into his dorm room as a, when he was still a young boy, you could see he was slated for greatness. What was it? Over his bed was a mirror. There were other fellows his age who had mirrors. That wasn't the unusual part. Around the mirror were the pictures of the gedolim, the people he wanted to be like, Rav Baruch Be'er, Rav Shimshkop. But that also wasn't the unusual part. Over the mirror were the words, why not you? And every day, young Mordechai Gifter would look at the people he wanted to be like, look at the eyes staring back at him from the mirror, read the words, why not you? And there was no reason why not you, because it became, Rav Mordechai Gifter tells her, Shiva, God will be Israel. But it's that ability to look in the mirror, to say, Hashem put me on a planet to grow and accomplish. Hashem gave me this one opportunity of growth. And Hashem gave me a Torah. Hashem gave me all of the directives, all of the plan, and the spiritual nourishment to do it. Let's go. But let's go where? I look in that mirror, I see the eyes staring back at me, and I ask myself, what are my talents? What are my strengths? What are my abilities? What did Hashem put me on a planet to accomplish? When you do that, and you learn, and you grow, and you accomplish, you become greater and greater. You're prepared to get hit. You're prepared to get knocked down, and you're prepared to get back in the fight, but your challenge is to grow and grow and accomplish. May Hashem grant you much, much success. And I want to thank again Yeshiva Takotel and this program. May Hashem grant us that this be the final step of the Gula. Next year, very imminently, Mashiach should come, should be in Yerushalayim Habnuyah.